Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be continuing our chat about Operation Pastorius, which, of course, those of you who tuned in last week or remember was uh, an attempt that was made by uh, by Nazi Germany to uh, to invade or send in saboteurs to the United States of America uh, at the height of the Second World War. Now, last week, of course, we heard about how these eight saboteurs, they were recruited, they were trained, and they were split into two groups of four before being sent across the Atlantic. Now, there was one group consisting of Kaling, Thiel, Haupt, and Neubauer, and they were headed towards the coast of Florida, while the other one, the one that we focused on as the at the end of the episode last week, uh, consisting of Dash, Berger, Quirin, and Hank, they landed on Long Island in New York on the 12th of June, 1942. And as we heard last week, there they were intercepted by a Coast Guard patrol, uh, and they, they intimidated and bribed this poor bloke, this poor young fella there, John Cullen, who was off patrolling along the beaches there, uh, and got rid of him. And they then they returned. They saw the escape of the U-boat, all that sort of stuff. You can go back and listen last week. I mean, you should listen. It's not, a, it's not generally a great idea to jump into a podcast episode for the first time that says a part two. But, you know, whatever. You do you. Anyway, that was where we left our story. The United States, uh, the authorities, they were converging on uh, on Long Island where the Nazi saboteurs had landed. The saboteurs themselves, however, they'd made themselves scarce. No one could find them. They didn't know where they were going because they were busy making their getaway. So this is where we're going to pick up the story now. We're going to pick up the story here all the way back to 1942, here, the 12th of June or 13th of June now as the saboteurs are getting away. They'd crept away from the beach and uh, and headed off towards the main road. This is the main road that uh, heads all the way out to Montauk, right at the the, the top uh, left, top left, top right. So I guess we should just use cardinal directions like a normal human. The northeast of Long Island, there like that. Um, they reached this. Uh, they reached this main road, and uh, unlike. I think I mentioned this last week. Unlike what Long Island looks like today, especially the Hamptons, obviously very, you know, very well known part of uh, very, sort of very wealthy area, from what I understand, wasn't like that at all. wasn't very well developed. There was a lot of a lot of scrub, a lot of bush, a lot of uh, you know just grass and trees and whatever else there like that. So you know they weren't creeping through uh, a uh, you know a, a residential neighbourhood. I think it's probably important to point out. So they creep away to this main road today. They follow it off to the small town of Amagansett. And there they boarded a train towards New York City just before seven o'clock in the morning. Now, they, but when they arrive at the train station, by the way, in Amagansett, they're still, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of in these sandy, dirty clothes. One of them is still in bathers. One of them's still in his togs there. And so uh, as they, you know, sort of turn up, get this first train left at like, I think, seven in the morning or something like that, the station master's looking at these weird blokes come in, you know, with their funny accents and odd clothing. One of the blokes, before he's come in, has actually stripped off his, uh, his bottoms, his bather bottoms, and chucked him into a hedge. So there's these dirty, mucky you know wet sandy bathers just hanging off a hedge somewhere but the uh, the station master doesn't think anything of it sells them their tickets and they're off bad, off uh, off towards new york city there uh, and later on the station master went out and saw the bathers on the hedge it was just like all right weirdos whatever didn't, didn't think anything of it anyway they arrived in queens they arrived in jamaica in queens at about nine o'clock in the morning after having traveled down uh, traveled down long island there and they immediately split up into two pairs. Hank and Quirin went off uh, in one direction, and Dash and Berger went off in the other. 
And then these four blokes just went and burnt fat stacks of cash. They had enormous amounts of money with them, as you remember from last week, and they spent huge amounts of it on basically everything they could they could think of: new clothes to replace, you know, all the dirty, sandy, busted stuff up that arrived, uh, busted up stuff that they've that arrived in. They bought uh, they bought food and they bought like watches and shoes and all sorts of stuff. I mean, they had about ninety thousand dollars between them. And I'll tell you this, they didn't hesitate on spending on absolutely everything that they could think of, including at the end of the day, a great big dinner. Now, interestingly, Dash and Burger ended up sharing a couple of steaks and a bottle of wine together. Now, this wasn't, you know, this was a dinner that you could, you would never be able to find uh, in, in Nazi Germany where everything was obviously rationed and scarce and whatever else. But while these blokes were chatting, this is what was interesting about it, right? While these two blokes are sitting there chomping down their big steaks, right, they started to very, very carefully, very slowly open up to one another. They shared some of their experiences with the Nazis, the negative experiences that they'd had, including the fact that Berger had actually, you know, I mentioned before he'd been imprisoned by the Gestapo, he had been critical of conditions in a concentration camp, and then the Gestapo had just chucked, chucked him into one of them because they because he criticised him, chucked him straight into a concentration camp for 17 months, and that was why he was on this mission. It was uh, it was a, a, an opportunity for political redemption for him, you know, basically a sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card given to him by the Nazis, say, look, you go and do this and we'll wipe the slate clean. Dash, on the other hand, had grown up uh, in, in quite a religious household, a very left-leaning, socialist, almost communist-leaning household, had come around to the Nazis and was now apparently back against them after having worked in uh, Nazi propaganda for, for years and years and years. And all of these conversations were leading in a certain direction. Both of these blokes didn't seem to be too crash-hot in the Nazis, and now they're over in the States, and, you know, they could be relatively sure that they weren't going to be overheard while having conversations like this, you know, by, by the Gestapo or anything else like that. They were starting to be a little bit more honest with each other about their real perspectives of of, uh, of, of the Nazis and the Nazi and Nazism and, and their whole mission they'd been given as well. It, it, it seems that these two saboteurs were very poorly chosen by Kappa and the other people who put the mission together because neither of them were the red-blooded rust, rusted on Nazis that I think they'd hoped for there. Anyway, neither of them seemed to be ready to go the full distance, right? Neither of them seemed to be ready to actually sort of make 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 the full step forward and say, "Listen, you know, I want to I want to chuck this mission in the bin here." But they both decided they'd continue the discussion the next morning, you know, have a chance to sleep on it and come back in the morning and, and continue chatting. And the next morning, Dash gets in touch with Berger, he invites him into his room, and then promptly, promptly barred the door, opened the window, and said that they were going to talk about things through and through and come to an understanding, or one of them would be going out the window, 14 stories to the pavement below. So... I mean, very much a cards on the table type moment for both of these blokes here who, you know, both of them, they suspected each other of, uh, of not being fully into this sabotage mission. And once they both got talking properly, they both realized that they were of the same mind and of the same purpose. Both of them had intended to give up on or even sabotage the sabotage mission right from the start. Neither of them were intending to follow through on it. In fact, check this out. Last week, I made a big deal about all the clothing and the whatever else that had been very carelessly left behind on the beach, right? I said there were, you know, there was a vest and some shoes and a packet of cigarettes, all that sort of stuff. And, I mean, what idiots? They'd left them lying around on the beach. Why would they do that? Well, Berger had deliberately done this. He'd left all this stuff lying around all over the place so the United States authorities would discover the cache of explosives. He had deliberately chucked his vest on the ground, discarded some, some German cigarettes, leaving clues, right? So... They, they wouldn't be able to come back for the explosives. The, the, the United States authorities, whoever, the FBI, the Coast Guard, whatever, they'd, they'd, they'd dig up, they'd discover this, uh, this cache of, of, of explosives that were there. And obviously this worked perfectly. It, it, it 100% works. So from the very beginning, there's strong evidence to indicate 
that Berger actually wanted to deep six this mission, uh, you know, before it had even really begun. However, they're not sure about the other six blokes on the mission, and in particular, they're not sure about Kvirin and Hank, right? Uh, they have to rendezvous with these two blokes later on this evening, and they haven't seen them for a full 24 hours. They're off staying in a different hotel. They haven't been in touch. And, uh, and as a result of this new revelation between Berger and Dash, they don't exactly know how they're going to handle this meeting. They go along all the same, and I'll tell you this, the meeting did not go well. Kvirin and Hank had also been chatting things over, and rather than wanting to sabotage the mission, they had started to suspect Berger and Dash of not wanting to follow through with it. So they actually thought these blokes were up to no good when it comes to, you know, what the, well, sorry, up to a lot of good. It was Kvirin and Hike who were the ones who were up to no good. Yes, it was Berger and, uh, Berger and Dash who were wanting to actually sort of undercut the, the no good that the Nazis were wanting to do there. Anyway, Kvirin, he is arrested on Nazi. He is keen to go back and get the explosive straight away and get to work. Now, this was something that obviously Berger and Dash did not want to do at all. And they had to sp- they had to spend a fair bit of time talking him down. The- they ultimately talked him out of it, saying, you know, it's too dangerous for the encounter after the Coast Guard. They need to get themselves settled, find these contacts that they've got and make sure everything's ready before they just go off like a blunderbuss going and trying to grab all these, whatever else they're like that. And this, obviously, obviously they managed to talk Kvirin down, but they didn't manage to allay his suspicion all that much. There was still a lot of suspicion, a lot of hostility between the two pairs here. And so when uh, Berger and Dash returned to their hotel, they decided they actually had to do something about this because otherwise otherwise it was going to emerge very quickly that they were, you know, that they were the quote-unquote traitors in the group there like that. So they decided to call the FBI and hand themselves in. They decided to call the FBI, turn themselves in like this and uh, and explain exactly what had, you know what had happened. Unfortunately, however, when Dash got on the phone and called up called up the FBI, he got shunted from department to department until he ended up talking to an operator in an office in a call center known as the Nutter's desk. This was one that was set up specifically to listen to crazy people talking a call in with wild ridiculous story so he wasn't going to be taken seriously from the very beginning now dash he told the truth he told the truth the the the, the call logs that were later you know the the, the notes that, that this operator took years and years later were, were discovered and uh and revealed that he basically outlined the entire thing group of eight eight germans eight nazis had landed on beaches in uh, in u-boats and were planning to blow up factories and whatever else they're like that but of course his story was just filed away as another crackpot tale and uh, and nothing was done despite dash saying listen make a note Tell your your boss, J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, someone you've, you've probably already uh, heard of, tell him I'm going to come down to Washington. I'm expecting to meet with him personally later on this week, right? So get ready for that because I'm going to come and turn myself in. We're going to sort out what we're going to do here. But as I say, you know, despite he expl- explained everything about the factories, the bridges, the explosives, the landing, all that sort of stuff, he wasn't taken seriously. He wasn't taken seriously at all. But nonetheless, he decided he was going to go down to Washington and, uh, and, and you know, force the issue because I think he had a bit, of, a, bit of, a bit of a sense that the FBI wasn't taking him seriously there. However, Dash did not go down to Washington straight away. He actually delayed taking any further steps for quite a while because he wanted to give the other four saboteurs time to hand themselves in before he went to the FBI personally very like very even-handed of him if that's the if that's why he did it because think about this if he betrayed them they were supposed to arrive a couple of days later imagine if they you know there were cops FBI waiting there with handcuffs ready before these blokes maybe they were going to get off the uh, off the boat and, and hand themselves in as well you know give them a chance to do that before he sort of blew the whistle on the whole thing but uh, you know whether that's the case or not he, he did seem to have a bit of a crisis of conscience with what he was doing and uh, the way that he dealt with this was by going to an old uh, an old favourite bar of his that he'd visited years previously 
and getting drunk as a skunk and blowing huge amounts of money on cards. And he did this, he went on a bender for, you know, a couple of days here until the 17th of June, as that's when the other submarine was due to arrive. Uh, obviously, as I say, he wanted to give them a chance to hand themselves in. And so he went on this all day, all night long bender here, playing cards, you know, shouting the bar, having a great time, chucking cash around before ultimately then staggering out of this, uh, you know, blinking into the sunlight uh, on the 17th and going, right, okay, time's, uh, you know, time's come, enough's enough. I'm going to head down to Washington and I'm going to hand myself in here. Now, He'd done this because, of course, he wanted to give the others a chance. But what had happened to the other group? Let's let's skip back over now to Cowling's crew, which you'll remember they were going to Florida. Now, unlike the debacle in New York with the Coast Guard, all that sort of stuff, the landing of Cowling's saboteurs was actually very smooth. It actually, it actually went off uh, went off without a hitch. Really, they they dodged patrol boats and zeppelins as they came in, and they deposited the saboteurs. The the U-boat there deposited the saboteurs on a beach near Pontevedra. Now, these blokes, uh, rather than, you know, getting to the sort of full Nazi uniforms while landing, because, you know, remember the whole prisoner of war thing, they needed to be dressed as enemy combatants while they're actually, you know, entering the United States. Rather than actually do the, get, get into the whole, you know, the whole fuss of putting on the entire uniform, they, they, all they did was they landed in their bathers and a German marine cap each. That was it. They thought that would be enough to get them arrested as soldiers rather than spies. But imagine that. They look like strippers. They look, they're, you know, they're there in they're, they're togs and their hats and nothing else. It's a, it's a very, very funny mental image there, I reckon. Anyway, these four saboteurs, uh, you know, dressed as strippers, they had a much easier time with things. They went ashore, they dragged their equipment up off the beach and they buried it amongst some palm trees. The U-boat, you know, their little, their little dinghy was rowed back to them and they, and, they, and they slipped off back into the Atlantic. No worries at all. And then these four blokes, after having safely landed on the shores of America, they walked to a nearby popular beach after they'd buried all their explosives, and as the sun came up, they just spent the morning pretending to be normal beachgoers, swimming about, enjoying themselves in the, you know, in the in the in the in the in the summer sunshine. Presumably they had taken the hats off and, and, and got rid of them because that would have raised more than a few eyebrows, I would have said. But they just hung out on the beach for the morning. And after that, they did largely the same thing as the the others had done in New York. They split into pairs and they went on a shopping spree in a nearby town before going off to two separate hotels. Now, unlike the others, unlike the blokes in New York, they got on the move very quickly. They went into state to Chicago, Cincinnati, New York. They split up there like that after agreeing to meet back on the 4th of July, as had been a planned initially. But before they split up, there were a couple, apparently a couple of conversations they had that were, you know, very in the realm of just hypothetical conversations, just just if, maybe, you know. Was there a way out of this whole sabotage plot? Because now that they're in the United States, they're all a lot less keen on actually following through on, you know, on the whole blowing stuff up bit. And, you know, they, they again, purely hypothetically, purely, purely hypothetically here, boys, is there any way that we perhaps want to abandon it? Well, look, we'll, we'll come back to it. We'll see how we go. But, you know, I, what, what it's fair to say is that a lot of them were having cold feet at this stage. A lot of them didn't really want to, uh, you know, turn around and start blowing up factories and whatever else in the United States now they were there. Anyway. Halpt went off to New uh, to, to to Chicago, I should say. He was the younger bloke who had grown up there. You remember that bloke who liked his, uh, you know, he liked his parties, liked his girls, whatever else. And Neubauer joined him later, while the other two, Kerling and Teal, they uh, they went off to Cincinnati and then to New York to make contact with Dash. And they went rather than go up and down the eastern seaboard, they went inland. They took railroads and whatever else they're like that, traveling you know off the beaten path there, so as to avoid any uh, undue or unwanted. Uh, uh, sort of uh, inspections or uh, or attention there like that. But uh, as I say, Kelling and Teal, they were heading to New York ultimately to make contact with Dash. But back up north, of course, you remember what Dash is about to do. 
he has finally gone to Washington. He traveled from New York to Washington to meet with the FBI. He got the train down and after attempting to meet with Hoover, the director, so going right to the top, he tried to at least, try to try to meet with Hoover, he was shunted off again three or four times before finally being offered a meeting with a bloke in charge of anti-sabotage efforts. Now this bloke, his name was Agent Dwayne L. Trainer. And he'd heard a whisper or two about the affair on Long Island. Stuff had reached back to him from the, the Coast Guard and the FBI that had been working there like that. And so he thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll hear this bloke's story, even if he's a nutter. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something to it. And obviously it turns out there was a lot to it, right? So he brings, he brings Dash in and lets him tell his story. Dash gave a long and expansive confession telling the FBI more or less his entire life story. It was all written down. They had uh, typists come in, uh, stenographers, whatever else come in. There were four of them working in shifts as this bloke gave a 274-page confession, right? This bloke, Dash was... A bit, in, a bit of an insufferable talker. He talked. He liked to talk a lot, and uh, that really came to bear as he was giving this sort of uh, this this statement to the FBI because 274 pages. He wasn't mucking about. But in this confession, as you might imagine, it gave the FBI more or less every detail you could think of, right? Including, uh, you know, what was going on in New York, where the, where the explosives had been buried, uh, what was happening in Florida, the plans, all that sort of stuff, where they were going to meet, how they are going to meet. I, I will say Dash did leave out a couple of important details that he claimed he couldn't remember, but were very clearly designed to, uh, to, to to keep him around. You know, they didn't he didn't want to give him everything. So he said, oh, I can't remember exactly where we're meeting in uh, in Cincinnati, or I can't remember exactly whatever else like that. So, you know, they, they wouldn't just sort of, you know, lock him in a dungeon and, and, and forget about him. So that was that was clever from Dash to make him make make sure never never make yourself expendable. Good good advice there. Never make yourself expendable. But after having uh, you know confessed to all this stuff, after having told the FBI what was going on, especially in New York, the FBI immediately put Berger under surveillance. They were able to find him. I mean, Dash knew exactly which hotel he was staying in, planning to use him to get to Hike and Quirin because they couldn't find them. Right? They weren't at the hotel that they had said they had gone to. So clearly, they were suspicious enough of Dash to actually have changed hotels and and, and sort of break with the story they'd given him. Right? And for good reason because he ultimately, obviously, you know, went off and, and sang like a canary. But um, uh, following Berger ended up doing the job there. It worked like a charm because Berger, he had taken the other two out the night before for a night on the town. He'd actually gone to go and get them as pissed as chooks there to to keep their attention off of Dash, right? So he'd gone and tried to, uh, you know, <laughs> show them a good time, whatever else they like that. And then, of course, they'd slept off the hangovers. And as soon as this happened, the three, uh, as soon as they got up and about, the uh, they three the three of them, they met up once again, right? And, and Dash, sorry, Berger was there trying to think of excuses about how he could uh, say where Dash was what he was doing, that sort of stuff. But he didn't have to, because this is when the FBI swooped in and arrested all three. Now, Hank and Kieran, after they were arrested, they attempted to hold out. They attempted to sort of, you know, they weren't going to give him any information. They weren't going to tell him anything else like that. But Berger, apparently, when they burst into the room and arrested him, he looked relieved. He was glad. He was like, oh, where were you, blokes? I was was worried you weren't going to come. So he looked actually very happy to uh, to have been arrested. And he was very cooperative indeed. He went along with the FBI and their questions and basically just, you know, told them everything that they asked. So So he was... You know, he was the he was the model prisoner, but Kvirin and Hank they weren't uh, they weren't giving up anything uh, for, for the time being. But back in Washington, trainer he's patiently putting up with Dash. He's primping him and pampering him as he continued to spill more and more details about the sabotage operation. You know, he's taking him out for dinner. He's putting up in a nice hotel, all that sort of stuff. Under the 
very strict supervision of FBI agents the entire time. He had G-men surrounding him at all times. He was a prisoner. He just didn't realize he was a prisoner. You know, they they take they drive very generous driving back to the hotel. Oh no, we'll we'll be here in the morning when you're ready to you know that sort of stuff. They're like that. But he was at this stage a prisoner. He just didn't realize it because trainer again softly softly catchy monkey. He was very very clever. He realized that that the best way to uh, appease Dash and get the most out of him was to you know sort of uh, pander to his ego there. So that was very clever. There's was clever stuff from Dash. Anyway. Trainer, from Trainer, sorry. Trainer got the uh, the names of the other saboteurs out of him, as well as the contacts that they'd organized to meet, meet with uh, in the United States. This is some of the stuff that I was saying that Dash was holding out on him. And then the FBI, they sent off uh, agents to trail these contacts and uh, armed with the descriptions of the other saboteurs, they were ordered to make arrests as soon as possible. So they went to these American-based contacts they had and then basically just tailed them, hoping and waiting for these saboteurs uh, to finally make contact. And uh, this worked. Curling was the first to be arrested. He uh, he had been in touch with one of the contacts, a bloke whose name was Lena, uh, and Lena had agreed to mediate a meeting between Curling and his wife, who he'd, he'd married an American years and years before. Uh, he hadn't seen her for years, and Curling uh, had agreed to meet her, you know, with with Lena there, sort of acting as a third party. But Curling never made it to the meeting. He never made it to the meeting as he left uh, he left a bar to go and meet her. The FBI picked him up off the street and drove off with him. And she was left there, stood up. After all these years, like, oh, your husband's back in town after so long. He smuggled himself in on a, on a German U-boat to come and see you. And then, yeah, never turned out up. This actually proved to be a, uh, a very good thing for her. Ultimately, because a lot of, uh, well, as the net kind of closed around these saboteurs, a lot of the people who were associated with him were also implicated. And the fact that she never even met him after he came back ended up being a very good uh, sort of legal obstacle for her uh, later on when it came, when it came to you know, the prosecution of their, of their contacts and associates. Anyway. Teal was also picked up. He'd, been, he'd actually been with Curling. The two of them had been uh, traveling together uh, and he was the next to get nabbed. He'd been at the same bar and he was arrested as he left a little bit later on. Obviously, uh, once again, he's drunk as a skunk and he's picked up and barreled into a uh, into an FBI car and that's the end of him. Cowling and Teal, they were interrogated all night, but they refused to give the FBI anything. They held out like no one else did there like that. Although, according to Cowling, the G-man who was interrogating will also beat him up. So, you know, maybe a little bit of prisoner mistreatment there, but whatever. Any, any, any way it goes, Cowling and Teal uh, interrogated very, very, uh, very in- intensely indeed, but they didn't give anything up for, for quite, a, quite a while. And in the meantime, over in Chicago, the FBI are also tracking down the contacts there, and they tracked down Halp's uncle. He was one of the contacts that uh, they'd gotten from Dash, and that finding uh, Halp's uncle soon led them to Halp. Halp had actually seemed to try to get his life back together in Chicago. He was, you know, very, very glad to be back. He'd visited old friends, registered for the draft, and by all accounts, he didn't really know what to do about the whole sabotage business. He, he seemed to want to settle back into his old life in Chicago before, you know, he'd fled to, to Mexico and Japan and then later on back, uh, back, to, back to Germany there. Uh, he even proposed to his old girlfriend, who who apparently accepted. So, you know, he really didn't look to have his heart in the whole sabotage operation there. But that didn't matter because the FBI found him. Uh, they didn't arrest him straight away, interestingly. They'd, uh, they'd obviously arrested Cowling and Teal and whatever else there like that. But they and they were ready. They were very ready to arrest Halpt and add his name to the list. But they didn't. They didn't nab him because they hoped that Halpt would lead them to Neubauer, the final remaining saboteur. They wanted they wanted to get him as well. And this was a very sensible line of thinking. Halpt and Neubauer had been hanging out a fair bit. They'd even gone to see a film about, <laughs> this was quite funny, uh, in Chicago, they'd been hanging out. They'd gone and seen a, saw a, saw a film. They'd gone and seen a film 
uh, called The 49th Parallel, or in the United States, it was called The Invasion. And it was a film about Nazis trying, Nazi saboteurs trying to invade North America. It was about, more of a raiding party, I guess. It was about a Nazi raiding party that had snuck into Canada via submarine. So it was eerily similar to their own story. And they'd gone to sort of, you know, maybe have a bit of a laugh about it, enjoy it, whatever else they're like that. But it threw them for a loop. I don't, you know, I don't want to spoil this. I don't want to spoil the film, The 49th Parallel, in case you end up watching it. But, I mean, the good guys win and, you know, the Nazis are caught by Laurence Olivier and whatever else, which only made Halpton Neubauer all the more nervous about the whole situation here, especially Neubauer, who is getting increasingly paranoid by the day. Anyway, Halpt, with the FBI trailing him, he is cutting about Chicago. Uh, he's mainly trying to find ways to uh, to dodge the draft. He's he's already he's registered for it, of course. If you didn't register for it, you'd be in big trouble. But now he's trying to find a way out of it. Uh, <laughs> one of the ways he did this, he bought nitroglycerin pills that make you seem like you've got a heart condition. You can get you, you back back then you get a hundred of them for thirty nine cents, which is an absolute bargain. And he looked into other ways as well, including uh, being ordained as a minister, which was a hundred dollars, which is you know not not so cheap. So maybe it was the old nitroglycerin pills. Uh, but eventually, however, the FBI, after tailing him for quite a number of days, they actually get impatient. He hasn't led them to Neubauer, and eventually they just decide they want this whole thing over with, and they're not going to wait for them to make their next meeting. So they arrested Haupt, who told him, uh, who told the FBI that he'd been planning to turn himself in and betray the other saboteurs. Um, and, of course, the FBI's first question that the people arrest him is, why Why didn't you do it sooner? And he was like, well, I was going to wait until we were all together back in the 4th of July. You know, you'd have all eight of us in the one place and I was going to dob them in there like that. The FBI do not believe a word of this, of course, and bundle him, in, uh, bundle him into the car, take him off downtown. But after having been arrested... Halpt correctly guesses that it had to, that it had to have been Berger and Dash that had been the one to report the operation to the FBI. He does realise that uh, yeah, the jig is up, and he actually doesn't hold out. To his credit, he did what he could to help the FBI find Neubauer, giving them details about all the hotels and the places that he thought Neubauer could be in. And you know, this this showed that this young bloke was probably just a little bit more misguided, a little bit sort of you know led astray, made some bad decisions, and 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 genuinely did want to move away from the sabotage operation there, even though. Again, he was a little bit late in, in sort of dobbing himself in there. But he did, he, the information that he gave to the FBI, it did lead to the arrest of Neubauer that very same day, the afternoon, the evening, uh, as he returned to his, his hotel room the same day that uh, Halp was arrested, Neubauer also got nabbed. Now, Neubauer apparently was stressed out of his mind at this point. He, was, he had a constant headache. He was jumpy as hell, jumpy as hell. And he also seemed to be uh, uh, relieved to be arrested. He was the last one of the eight to be picked up. And he seemed to be just, you know, to be glad that the ordeal was, uh, was just was all over Red Rover. But the bad news now came to Dash because after telling the FBI everything that he could uh, about anything that he could, once Neubauer was finally arrested, Dash also had the hammer fall. He was arrested. He was sent to a, a holding facility. Up to then, the FBI, as I say, with Trainer, they'd been buttering him up. They'd been making him seem like he was going to be, you know, great use to them, maybe give him a job as an advisor for anti-Nazi propaganda or whatever. He really, you know, and Dash was keen as all hell to do this. He wanted to start making propaganda for the United States to, to fight the German, uh, the, the German propaganda machine there like that. But they were completely blowing smoke up his ass. They had other plans entirely for him. The FBI had this plan here. They didn't want it to seem like they'd found out about Operation Pastorius because of some lucky timing, you know, a coincidence with the Coast Guard patrol and, and, and Dash getting cold feet about the whole thing. They wanted it to seem like the US coast was impenetrable and that, that, that Operation Pastorius was, was destined to fail because of how vigilant and how strongly defended the, uh, the United States coastline was there like that, right? So 
what they wanted to uh, they wanted to spin this whole thing uh, publicly at least so when the uh, when the germans found out about it this is what this is what they'd understand they wanted uh, them to make it seem like there had been traitors within the abwehr or even maybe within the the, the german high command who had sabotaged and informed uh, you know as as double agents informed the united states about what was going on there uh, told them about the operation from the get go so they forced ash to accept a deal that would see him plead guilty and then be quietly released sometime later, which was not what he had in mind at all. He wanted to get involved with the FBI in fighting propaganda battles against Germany, but that was not what was going to happen. Hoover, the FBI director, he instead planned to make it look like the FBI had done all the legwork rather than basically just have Dash fall into their laps. So, after the saboteurs had been rounded up and locked away, Hoover calls an enormous big press conference where he demonstrated some pretty typical, uh, pretty characteristic economy with the truth. This was what this bloke would often do here. He made it sound like that this was a slam dunk triumph for the FBI. He created the impression that the whole thing had been an FBI stitch up from the beginning. Again, back in Germany, the saboteurs had been undergoing training. He made it sound like that the the you know the, the FBI knew about that and they had informants and, and spies everywhere, that sort of stuff. And Hoover got what he wanted. He distorted the truth of the whole affair to make it seem like the Nazis had been played for fools. Here's how one news agency reported on the press conference. This is, this is one of the reports that came out at the time. <clears throat> Mr. Hoover declined to comment on whether or not FBI agents had infiltrated into not only the Gestapo, but also the High Command, or whether he had watched the saboteurs land. Of course, he hadn't done either of those things. He hadn't done anything like this. But because he declined to comment on whether or not it had happened, it made it seem like it had. Pretty bloody brazen, even for someone who built his career on stuff like this. And on top of that, he didn't make any mention of the Coast Guard or anything. So Hoover was was playing for keeps and he did a very good job of turning this into a, you know, a big, big victory for the FBI. However, when it came to the trial of the saboteurs, however, things started to get pretty interesting because two of these blokes were U.S. citizens. Berger and Haupt both had U.S. passports. And so this was – well, that, that, that wasn't the interesting part. That, that, that was simple enough, right? Just charge these blokes with high treason, execute them, make sense. They ostensibly re-entered the United States intending to sabotage the war effort. That is just the you know, textbook definition of high treason, so easy enough to get rid of the two U.S. citizens. The other six, however, were a little bit more difficult. Were they acting – as civilians or as military personnel. This was difficult to properly ascertain because on the one hand, they had entered the country as a hostile invading force in military uniform, even if it was only a hat, which you know is in line with the rules of war. On the other, they hadn't actually done anything that remotely resembled actual sabotage and they hadn't taken anything that could be properly called a military action once inside the US properly. So were they to be tried as civilians in the you know in a regular criminal court or as military which would take place you know in in a court martial which would obviously mean a very 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 different set of circumstances for 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 the prisoners involved now president roosevelt he personally involved himself to see that they were charged and tried in a military court rather than a civilian court because in a civilian court, they faced, right, this was going to be the penalty if they, if they were tried in a, in a, as criminals in a civilian court. They faced two years in prison and a fine for conspiracy to commit a crime against the United States. Because after all, if you go to a shop and you buy a gun and don't kill anyone with it, you can't be charged with murder, right? You can be charged with conspiracy or intent or whatever. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know, you know, I don't know what it is, but you haven't killed anyone, so you're not a murderer. 
And it was the same with these. How could these blokes be charged with, you know, with with, uh, with espionage or with, with saboteur, sabotage or anything else like that? They didn't do anything. They just came into the country intending to do it. So two years in prison would be all that these, uh, these six non-US citizens would get. So Roosevelt was determined, determined to see them tried in a military court, tried as enemy combatants, where they could be charged with breaking the rules of war by discarding uniforms and acting with hostile intent whilst dressed as civilian, which is contrary to the rules of war. It's so odd to think that this whole thing just came down to what they were wearing, but that is how it went. Eventually, Roosevelt got his way. The eight men, they were slated to be put in front of a military commission. Now, this was even worse than a court-martial for the saboteurs. This is, this, is, this is even more dire than a court-martial. A military commission was basically an ad hoc trial that didn't have to, quote-unquote, play by the rules when it came to evidence and procedure and whatever else. The, basically, the bloke in charge of it, the, 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 the judge or whatever you want to call it, the, the bloke who was overseeing the trial, could... could basically a carte blanche as to how this, this, this trial, how the commission was going to be run. And so it was that in early July, around the same time that these Nazi saboteurs had originally planned to meet in Cincinnati, they were instead hauled in front of a military commission. And I tell you what, they were not feeling very optimistic about their chances. The main defense lawyer appointed to, to defend the saboteurs, his name was Kenneth Royal, right? And I have to say this, he did his best. He did his best. He challenged the validity and the legitimacy of the military commission. Uh, he used a court decision that had been made at the end of the American Civil War that overturned Lincoln, Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus uh, in attempting to demonstrate that the saboteurs uh, should be tried in a in a in a civilian court. This uh, this was a decision called Ex Parte Milligan, and it had something to. Do, I don't fully understand the legal ramifications of it, but it had something to do with uh, using military courts for civilians when civilian courts were available. And and the decision was you can't try someone in a military court when justice is still able to be dispensed using a civilian court. And and that was the that was the the principle that uh, that this bloke Royal uh, tried to invoke, but it was no good. Because his challenge to the, the to the legitimacy of the uh, the military uh, commission, it was it was chucked out, chucked out on its ear, and the trial got on the uh, underway all the same. Now, one of the star witnesses, a uh, little little bit of a cameo appearance here, was John Cullen, the Coast Guard patrolman. He pointed out Dash as the man who threatened him on the beach. He remembered this. Uh, he remembered his hairstyle. I remembered his voice, and uh, he remembered uh, you know the the, the very <laughs> very full on altercation that he had with this bloke when he when he threatened to kill him. And the evidence and the testimony piled up, and given the military commission's approach to the admissibility of evidence, i.e. everything was admissible, the whole thing it honestly seemed like a bit of a fait accompli at this point. Because the saboteurs, well, look, the saboteurs, they were all given their chance to tell their side of the story, and it was then that both uh, Dash and Berger did everything they could to make it clear that they had tried to blow the whistle on the whole thing and, and definitely had, you know, very much come with the intention of, of sabotaging the sabotage operation there like that. But thing, things look very grim for these eight blokes, very grim indeed, especially for the six who uh, who hadn't turned themselves in here. Uh, now, even, you know, the military commission, they couldn't ignore the fact that Dash and Berger had, uh, had, you know, handed themselves in. It was very clear that they'd given themselves up there. But... Royale was was running out of the defense lawyer. He was running out of options. He's running out of options to try to save these blokes from uh, you know from, from basically from the gallows. They, they they're going to be executed if they're found guilty. That much is that much is certain. And you sort of think, well, why is he trying so hard? These guys are literal Nazis. Like, what is he? Why is he trying to defend them? But it was this bloke. It was it was his. I mean, he did his job. 
He did everything that he could to make sure that the rule of law didn't break down in a time of war. And maybe he didn't even want to do this. Maybe he didn't want to be, uh, you know, the sort of person who was on trial defend, or, or, you know, in the courtroom defending, defending literal Nazis. But he did it. And I think that he deserves a, a, good, a good measure of admiration, uh, you know, of having done that. He actually went on to rise through the ranks. I think he became the Secretary of War later on, in the, later in the 40s. So he did pretty well for himself, Roy Island. You know, he, he gave a good account of himself as a defence lawyer in a very, very difficult position. So I think, I think good on him. Anyway, he finally managed to make an appeal be heard in the Supreme Court, which was which took a lot of legwork. He did this per- by personally visiting different justices, all of whom were on summer recess. They're all on break or you know on holiday around around the country, until he was able to talk them into hearing the objection that he had. This thing based on ex parte Milligan, and once again, Royale he used that to uh, to challenge the military commission by claiming that the saboteurs they had had their civil rights infringed. The ancient writ of habeas corpus meant that they should be tried in a civilian court because there still were civilian courts available for them to be tried into tried in, but it did no good. After hearing both sides, the Supreme Court, they affirmed the legitimacy of the military commission and uh, you know none of them wanted to be the to, none of them wanted to be the justice justice that went against the president in a time of war in defending again literal Nazis. So they all they unfortunately for the for for Royale and his attempt to uh, have these blokes tried in a, in a civilian court, the 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 legitimacy of the uh, commission, the military commission, was upheld. And once the eight saboteurs were back up in front of it. Six of them, well, all of them were found guilty. Six of them were sentenced to death. And Dash and Berger, rather, were, uh, you know, in light of the fact that they had blown the whistle and helped the FBI, the recommendation, the sentence in their case was 30 years for Dash and life for Berger. Now, Roosevelt, broadly, he, up, he, he upheld the recommendations of the commission. And so, after the, at the result, of this, uh, the result of this trial here, on the 8th of August in 1942, Haupt, Heink, Kerling, Neubauer, Quirin, and finally Thiel. They were taken away from where they were being held in prison. They were led to an electric chair, which was nicknamed Old Sparky. They had electrodes attached to their shaved heads and legs, and they were executed with 2,000 volts of electricity. Their six corpses were all taken to a small cemetery next to a sewage plant on the, end, on the edge of DC, and they were buried in graves marked with no names, only by numbers. Now, Dash and Berger, on the other hand, in, in line with the recommendation uh, for the sentencing that they'd received, they were sent to a federal prison in Atlanta, where Dash became further unhinged while Berger was a model prisoner. Uh, neither served his sentence in full, however. So Dash, uh, after having sort of uh, pissed off everyone at the prison from the inmates to the guards to the, you know, to the, to the bloody warden himself by the sound of things, Berger, on the other hand, just got on with things, accepted his fate, resigned to the fact that he was now a prisoner of the, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the US prison system there. But as I say, neither of them actually had to serve their entire sentence because once the war was over, the zeal for punishment had waned. And the fact of the matter is that it was both Dash and Berger. It was not the FBI. It wasn't the Coast Guard or anyone else who had brought Operation Pastorius undone. And once this, this you know, anti-German fervor had sort of worn off a little bit as we head out of the 40s and into the 50s there like that, uh, the, the desire to keep these two men locked up, the two men who more or less were single-handedly responsible for the failure of Operation Pastorius, uh, the, you know, the desire to keep them locked up was, uh, was significantly diminished, diminished as, as the years went on. And as a result, as a result, in 1948, President Harry S. Truman granted them both executive clemency and deported them back to Germany. Uh, by the way, President Harry S. Truman, the S, right? I found this out. Very interesting. The S stands for... S. His literal name, his his middle name was literally 
S. Anyway, it's Truman who signed them, who signs, you know, executive clemency for them both, and they're sent back off to Germany, and they arrive in Stuttgart in what would then later become West Germany. But it was not a happy uh, homecoming return for these, for either of these blokes here, because. Despite the fact that, you know, the Nazis had lost the war, despite the fact that uh, there was obviously a huge process of denazification going on in Germany at this stage here like that, these blokes were seen as traitors. They, they were seen as, you know, having sold, the, sold their other mates up the river and uh, all their compatriots back in Germany, uh, they, 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 they shunned them. They, they, they were treated as pariahs, basically, for having given up the other saboteurs. Berger struggled to find his feet. He was in perpetual poverty for years. His past came back to haunt him as, you know, people find it, found out who he was and what he'd done. He lost jobs. He faced, as I say, pariahdom for, uh, for what he'd done in the United States. And Dash, he fled to the East. He hoped that uh, this time he would be able to exploit his story for propaganda once again, but this time with the Russians. But they were about as interested in him as the FBI had been, and they told him to, uh, to tell his story walking. No thanks, mate. And uh, in fairness to Dash, he did exactly that. He did tell his story walking. He wrote a book about it in 1959, and pretty much everyone ignored it, to be honest. Berger died in 1975 at the age of 69, while Dash uh, stuck around until 1992 and died at the age of 89. And with the end of Dash's life, we also, at long last, reach the end of the story of Operation Pastorius. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That, at long last, is the story of Operation Pastorius. I went very, very deep on this one. It was supposed to just be a, uh, you know, an easy breezy one-week story, but... uh yeah, we, uh, we uncovered a couple extra details. So I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. I don't know how people feel about the two-part episodes. They don't traditionally do as well when it comes to the numbers. But, you know, if, if people like them, I'll keep doing it. If you, if, you, if you have a strong feeling one way or another, please let me know. I'm always keen to hear from people. Uh, if you've got a strong feeling about anything, really, please let me know. Uh, jump on the website, halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. It's always good to hear from people. I've had a bunch of emails recently that I still haven't got back to. I'm very sorry about that. Uh, but I do read all of them and I add all of the um, all of the topics that are sent into my list. So I'll be, I'll be having a look at that in the coming weeks. As I, as I write out some more episodes. But thanks so much for listening in. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. If you've got the time, do us a favor and write, a, write, a, write us a review on iTunes. I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Apparently, it's a very beneficial for the show's numbers, so if you, if you wouldn't mind doing that. Or just do an IRL review and just tell your mates about the show. That would also be fantastic because uh, the more people that listen in, the better. And, of course, if you missed the announcement last week, uh, the half Us History merch shop is open for business. I've already sent off some T-shirts to people around the world who have ordered it. So jump over to halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com and you'll see uh, all the all the various wares that are on offer there be quick before they sell out or before i jack up the prices uh because of you know just how alarmingly popular everything is uh but uh, yeah if you want to if you want a t-shirt or a magnet or, or whatever else jump on uh, jump on that website and, uh, and you'll find it there Finally, a special thank you goes to all the Patreon people supporting this show, all of my supporters on Patreon who chuck me money every month, and I, I can't say how much I appreciate it. If you want to join their exalted ranks, head over to uh, patreon.com slash history. Range of benefits there. Uh, of course, one of the one of them being that uh, the uh, many of these patrons will not only be listening to this episode ahead of time when it comes out a couple of days early, they'll also be listening to it unedited if they so choose, with all the burps and the farts and the mistakes and the bad, bad pronunciation and everything left in. So if that's something that interests you, uh, head over there and, and you can sign up today. Anyway, that's enough boring nonsense. We're going to close out the show as usual with the uh, with the usual question posed on Reddit. Uh, this one comes from Reddit historian Pose underscore Ting. And Pose Ting wants to know, why did Hitler kill himself instead of just going to the lost and found when he lost World War II?